Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to talk about groups, specifically coaching groups. As you know, my friend Eric Tivers runs an online video-based coaching and accountability group for ADHD adults, where he talks about productivity and planning, time management. Registration, by the way, has been extended to Thursday, March 15th. So if you're hearing this on the day it gets released, there's still time to sign up. Go to coachingrewired.com to do so. And I'm thinking about launching some groups of my own, specifically parent groups, where we'll talk about everything from morning routines to homework to how to better communicate with your child. If that's something you'd be interested in, please send me an email at brendan at adhdessentials.com. This is episode 11. Today, I'm talking to Jessica. Jessica is a mother with ADHD, and her husband has ADHD, and one of her two kids has ADHD. There's a lot of ADHD in this family, and as you listen, you'll find there's also a lot of love and a great deal of respect. In today's episode, we're talking about respecting the question why the impact ADHD has on the non-ADHD kid, and why parents don't get last names on this podcast. All right, let's get rolling. So mom and dad have ADHD, one of the two kids have ADHD. Yes, and then a sprinkling of extended family. Fun. Oh yeah, we're we're a hoot. (laughs) So yeah, what is it like? What's it like in your house with that much ADHD? All the typical things that get in one's way are kind of doubled up a little bit. But it also means that we're very forgiving of each other when things don't go well. What are some typical things that get doubled up? Nobody wants to do the dishes. Nobody wants to do the laundry. It doesn't mean that it doesn't get done. It's just like, who's going to draw the short straw this time and, you know, adult for a little while. So it can be stressful and challenging the same way that it is when you're raising somebody with ADHD, except that we're adults. So we have to decide if we're going to support each other and compromise with each other and, and do all the things that get us through those like daily requirements. But it also gives us a level of understanding and patience that I think may not be typical for all people with ADHD, because I know patience isn't necessarily always one of our strong suits, but I'm patient with the mistakes. We're patient with the things that trip one another up. And this is you and your husband. Yeah. And, and, and it spreads to the kids too. But generally speaking, we don't abide by any kind of social norms in terms of like division of labor or things like that. It's literally like, I hate laundry less than you do. And you like folding more than I do. 
And so I will take this on and you will take that task on, like divide and conquer. And does that vary based on the day? Like today, you hate laundry more than I hate laundry. Most of the time he does the laundry. Most of the time I fold. Okay. Part of it is that he's willing to do all the separate kinds of loads of laundry. Like he, he embraces that. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, oh no, 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 it's never going to get done. I just feel like it's any task where I'm wearing something that should be in there. It never ends. There's no end that overwhelming. But with a load of laundry, it's defined. But when you're doing it, it feels like it's never ending when you're just putting load after load after load into the laundry. Yeah. And even when it gets done with the washing machine, it's still not done because you still have to put it in the dryer. And then remembering to come back and not have a wet load that sits there for 24 hours or 12 hours. or Yeah. Those are not my strong suits. His, okay. his short-term and working memory are stronger than mine. So we take advantage of that. But my patience and ability to work long-term on a project exceed his. Okay. So we just kind of play to our strengths as much as possible. I know laundry, laundry and dishes are like our two main. Ugh. So do you put the dishes away and he does the cleaning of the dishes? Well, now the children are old enough. So I assign them. Nice. How old are your kids? 15 and 11. The 15 year old is the child with ADHD. My 11 year old has anxiety, but no ADHD tendencies. Both boys, both girls? Both boys. Um, in our house, we're generally consistently inconsistent which is not necessarily what the experts recommend for parents of children with ADHD. You know, ADHD kids love structure and they need consistency. And those are two things that we struggle to provide from that, from that perspective, like from the ADHD perspective. So we've tried to find workarounds. What are those workarounds? We use respect as a foundation for our entire interaction as a family. So rather than give someone a chore and say, that's your chore, I might say, all right, we're all contributing today you're going to go do the dishes. I'm going to go, you know, um, but it also extends to how we talk to each other, how we do consequences for an, for an action. Like I'm not great necessarily about saying, all right, you're going to be uh, losing electronics for the next week. Mm -hmm. um, and then sticking with that because I'll forget, you know, and he'll forget and then nothing, you know, so rather than that, we've focused on in the moment coaching so when the action occurs or the thing that needs to be addressed, we deal with it right away and we ask what should have happened, mm -hmm. what did happen, what do you, why do you think that happened? You know, like prompting questions so that it can be more reflective on your own choices and behavior and start to recognize your patterns so that you can, you know, address them a little bit more actively going forward. Um, and I found that because we lean on respect as the foundation, it means that we treat each other that way. So my kids typically really don't push back too much. They might ask why, but we respect the question why. Mm -hmm. Because ADD kids, we need, I need context in order to do things correctly. Right. So when someone tells me to do something, I'm going to ask them questions around that. For a kid, that question is generally why. Why do I have to clean my room? Because I want to make sure that if there's ever a fire or an emergency in the house, I can get you out safe. Right. I want, you know, like they need a reason that that's important. So we respect that question. We don't look at it as defiance. That is a really, really, really important point because so many people do take that as defiance. So many adults do see a kid asking why as the kid being defiant or being obnoxious or being rude when often with kids in general and especially ADHD kids, it's really just a curiosity thing and a trying to understand thing. And trying to connect back to it. Um, I, I kind of liken it to, I didn't do well in algebra, but I did well in geometry. Algebra didn't have a context for me. It was just formulas, but I didn't understand what the formulas applied to. I mean, I kind of generally do, but 
it wasn't like geometry where they'll give you a triangle and you can see the relationships between the angles. And so there's already a context for the equation that you're about to do and you can go back and reference right. that. And I've also noticed in my own personal experience growing up, I do better when I emotionally connect with the situation. So the more context, the more I'm allowed to be vested in it, the more questions I'm allowed to ask, the deeper I can get, the better job I do. Right. That does not mean that they don't push back sometimes. And that doesn't mean that we don't pull rank sometimes. You have to. Exactly. I just don't want to sound as though our, our parenting technique is very um, go with the flow. They're setting their own agenda. No, we, that's not how it works. It's just a respect. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say respect is something that I demand as an adult. I'm going to say that I respect you and you will respect me back. I tend to take a very similar approach, right? And the way I think of it, and this might resonate for you, is my kids are people first. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to treat them with the respect I would treat any other person. And then when it turns out that, oh, in this moment, they're a kid, then I'm going to be like, yeah, well, I'm the adult. So here's what needs to happen. But as long as they're doing it right, I don't need to pull rank. And if, right. if they're doing it wrong, but it's coming from a place of a lack of understanding or an inability to regulate themselves, me pulling rank isn't something that's useful. Right, exactly. It's only when they're doing it wrong out of defiance that me pulling rank is going to matter, really. And even then, I have to do it carefully because they're already being defiant. So right, right, pulling exactly. rank might backfire. And, and I really think that a lot of childhood troubles that carry over into adulthood with ADHD are that our brains make a lot of decisions for us. And then we have to deal with the consequences of that. So when we as a parent also take over all the external controls that our kids might have, we are leaving them with no outlet where they feel like they're in control of themselves. And then you start to get pushback because their brain's not letting them control their decisions. And I, as a parent, have decided that I'm not going to let them make any decisions. And now I've got a kid who feels trapped and not listened to. And, and that's, I think, where you sometimes get a lot of that really heavy defiance. I'm not saying across the board that that's a cause for it, but I can see where that frustration might manifest in certain kids as closing off and in other kids as pushing back and getting angry or throwing tantrums or like really like escalating things. And so we've tried our best to make sure that we, that we live in an environment where we're receptive to a little bit of pushback because they're kids and because one of them has ADD and that's going to happen. But also if you've emphasized respect that when I tell him why he has to do something, even if he disagrees with it, he generally just goes into it. Josh Ship wrote a book called The Grown-Up's Guide to the Teenage Human. And in the very beginning of that book, he uses a metaphor where he talks about pushback from kids. In this case, it's teenagers, but it applies to any age, really. And the metaphor he uses is when you get onto a roller coaster and you grab that lap bar and you kind of like shake it around and try to make it disengage because you're afraid it's going to disengage and you want to make sure it's strong and stable and going to be there. That's great. I like that. Right? He talks mm -hmm. about how kids, when they're pushing back, that's what they're doing. They're like, I'm going to put like, I'm going to shake the lap bar that is mom and dad. And are they still going to be here? And that's their safe place to do it. And it's their safe place to land. And they need to know that they have a safe place to land. And it does get much worse in the teenage years because they're about to leave. And they're like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to shake this a lot because I am going to have to come back at some point, I think. And are you going to be here? <laughs> yeah. So it makes exactly. sense that that's going to get more intense in the teenage years. But I really like that metaphor. My parents still remember. They actually, um, I was diagnosed with ADHD in a formal way when I was, when I turned 30. 
Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you go back and read my report cards, you can tell. You can tell that the grades reflect it. The comments are exactly what we all are so familiar with. If she could just apply herself or a little more focus or quality of work, attention to detail, those kinds of things. So you were saying that you yeah. pull a lot from your childhood experience. Yes. Uh, I'm one of five girls. I was the only one and the oldest. I'm the only one that couldn't follow multi-step instructions. And it took my parents a while to realize that it wasn't me defying them. It wasn't me just choosing to do whatever I wanted to do. It took them a really long time to figure out that I could not do what they wanted me to do. My dad is also extremely ADHD. And it's mostly a filter thing for him, a verbal filter. Oh, he's a hoot. He tells you things the way they occur to him or his questions come out as they occur to him. And one day he told me, I am so proud of you. You have done so well. I thought you would be living with us for the rest of your life. Wow. Which seems awful. But if you know my father, you know that he just paid me a huge compliment. Like it was really rough going for a really long time. Yeah. I don't know. They've been very supportive to the best of their ability. And that's kind of what we try to do. And I acknowledge that. Like they didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea what they were doing. But they did their best and let me know that I always had somewhere to be. That's great. That's really all you can ask for from parents. Yeah. Whether, whether you're the parents or they're your parents. That's our job is to just do the best we can with our abilities and make sure our kids know that they always have a spot. Exactly. You belong here. And I think that's key to being a successful adult with ADHD is knowing that someone had your back. So one of the pieces of advice that I give to a lot of parents who are really struggling with getting their head around this is in this moment, if you can't fix the situation, that's okay. Just go be the adult that you needed when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I often say that I wish I had a me when I was a kid. I honestly, I wish I had a me when I was 35. <laughs> and that's because I had to become the person that I needed to have. So I just kept right. going forward down that road until I became that person. Like you were saying about, we were saying about sort of having a place to belong and a place that is safe. Um, one of my sons has the occasional burst of anxiety, mm -hmm. especially when there's a lot of transitions, which we're in the middle of right now in Massachusetts yeah. because of all the snow days and stuff. We haven't had a full week of school since Christmas. Actually, no, we had one full week of school since Christmas. One night he was upset. It was really late and he was really angry and he just couldn't even express it. His neck was veiny and he mm -hmm. was like straining because it couldn't, he couldn't come out and he kept mouthing something. I'm like, bud, just say it. Like it's what it, whatever it is that you want to say, whatever it is that's going on right now, just say it. And he's like, I can't, you'll get mad. I'm like, no, pal, I'm telling you, it's fine. Whatever it is, yep. like, you can say whatever bad word you need to say right now or whatever mean thing you need to say, go ahead. And so he drops an F the world oh, the, yeah, at, at eight years old. And I looked at him and I said, I love you. And I gave him a hug and he deflated. Yeah. The relief that washed over him was hugely important for me as a dad. Yes. To see that and to, cause I've always known that what he needs in those moments most is just some unconditional love. Yep. The context can come later. The help can come later. It's really like you got to get them to put those emotions aside, but they have to work through that. And I've noticed with my son with that, that has anxiety that um, it doesn't really matter much what I tell him from a logic perspective. He needs to rationalize things himself. So I can give him some information and some tools, but it's all on his own timeline in terms of getting through that situation and deciding how much control over his life he's going to give it 
and some of that is because when they're that emotional, right? When they're they're getting amygdala hijacked, the amygdala is the part of the brain that manages emotions, and you don't get to the rest of the brain if the amygdala is hijacking it. If you've got that amygdala hijack happening, if you're if you're just emotional, we can't get to logical thinking. Right. We can't get to careful consideration because the emotions are winning, and you have to ride that out or help the kid ride that out or help talk them down or whatever makes sense to get them to the point where they can make good decisions. The only exception for my kids is if they're making other people feel unsafe. Right. Yes. We have genuine consequences for dangerous and destructive behavior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Outside of that, man, drop whatever word you need to drop. Be angry. That's okay. And granted that the example you gave where he was so, so physically overwhelmed by his emotion that he wasn't in a place to really work through anything. Sometimes before a kid gets to that point. So I have, um, I have a sewing school mm-hmm. and a lot of the kids in that sewing school, oddly enough, I eventually find out that they're part of our little tribe. Oftentimes, I mean, like there's a lot of kids who are just drawn to work with their hands and their family sees that and then they end up with me. And I have a couple of kids that come in that have some pretty significant anxiety around, well, their, their work is getting done faster than mine. My work isn't neat enough. And you see that panic rise in them. Mm-hmm. And then we just, I'll say, all right, let's set it aside for a second. And then we'll do some math problems, which sounds probably completely ridiculous, but it refocuses from the emotional part of your brain. So it gives you a break from that rush. And then we can talk about things and move forward. So yeah, a lot of times we'll be like, so what's five plus eight? You know, like I, even in my own brain, I'm, so, I'm like, uh, all right. 13. Kind of slowing down. I know, right? <laughs> Art major, no requirement for math. So I don't know. I just try to find tricks and things that work with them. I'm, I'm not above fibbing to my kids for their own mental health. My, uh, my youngest was very afraid of spiders at one point, And we had a spider in the house that we found one day and it's called a water spider. So by his three-year, three-year-old logic, a water spider must live in the toilet. So then he would not use the toilet for like six months of like, can you hold me over the toilet? Can you, can you help me? Wow. Yeah. For a really long time. Um, we made a uh, anti-spider spray, which was really just a spray bottle. I'd let him throw some like food coloring in it and, you know, some spice, <laughs> spice track and whatever. I was like, I looked it up online. This is going to work. And he'd spray the toilet and then he would use it and he'd spray the toilet. And then about three or four months after that whole process, he was like, Oh, um, you know, when you flush the toilet, the spider probably can't live in the toilet after that. And I was like, geez, it took us six months to get to the, if we flushed, the spider's gone. But whew, thank goodness I'm not holding anybody over the toilet anymore. <laughs> we flushed the toilet like a dozen times a day. Right? So. I know. I was like, <laughs> but that's what I mean by taking, like rationalizing it on his own timeline. Right. Like he had to get there on his own. We went over that several times, but it really took that long. My two favorite questions to ask my, my guests or my parent guests, I suppose are how does ADHD make things harder? And then what does it add? And you've kind of touched on these a little bit already, but I thought maybe we could explore them in a little more depth. Sure, absolutely. So how, how does ADHD make things harder? And what are you doing to compensate for those things, for those moments? We embrace our weaknesses and we embrace our strengths. So we own it. We own it. And that's part of the parenting piece too, is that when you have ADHD, you're going to make mistakes more so than other people. And we know we're going to make more mistakes. And then we start to, you know, that, that weight starts to kind of crush you. Like you think that nobody makes mistakes as much as you do. Nobody is, is, is failing as often as you are. And that's not true. Everybody out there is making mistakes. Every human being out there is screwing up. 
The difference is that they own it and they move on. So when we make a mistake, we apologize for it. We correct it if it's a correctable thing or we verbalize how, what we should have done. And then we forgive each other and we move on. So what kinds of mistakes are common or familiar? The other day, my 15-year-old came home from school and said, I am so excited to work on this project with you. This is exactly the kind of project you love to work on. I have to create a Rube Goldberg contraption. That's like an absurd contraption with several steps. And it has to do something very simple in the end. And um, he's right. It's exactly the kind of project I love. It was my first assignment as an animation major was to make a Rube Goldberg animation. So I already had a, an understanding of the concept. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm very excited to work with you on that. When is it due? Tomorrow. Not only was it due tomorrow, but it was due tomorrow and it had to be videotaped in one shot, working from beginning to end. So um, I've forgiven him. <laughs> we did get it done. Um, when was it assigned? Two weeks before. Okay. Yep. So my idea of a consequence for that kind of thing at, at, for a 15-year-old is for every day you had to work on this and you did not work on this, you lose electronics for the day because right now his currency is electronics. Okay. I tell parents that all the time too, like punishment doesn't work very well with ADHD kids. Reward systems do. And removing the thing that they feel most rewarded by can occasionally, like depending on, you know, what kind of impact you're trying to have. So you have to know their currency. My approach to that is that the consequence should fit the solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. Not that the punishment should fit the crime, right. but that the consequence should fit the solution to the problem. Your example fits that model because odds are he was, you know, playing electronics instead of... Right. I got tomorrow. Right. Hopefully you do the next assignment on time because you're not going to have the electronics to distract you. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it has that emotional component. because Oh, yeah. That currency is a valid point. Yeah. Too. That's important. You know, you see a lot of parents saying well, my child did this, so the consequence was I'm, I don't know, that they lose electronics for the next two weeks. And it just, beyond the punishment doesn't fit the crime. There's no lesson in that. There's no connection for them. And with our group, with ADHD kids, it's not conducive to learning. It just isn't. To like punish them for extended periods of time is a burden for them. It's a burden for you. It doesn't really teach past that first moment. It's like putting them in timeout when they're little. My child without ADHD understood timeout. It made sense. It worked. My child with ADHD, we totally threw timeouts out the window because timeouts turn into daydreaming time. And like, if he's like me and he is, he's totally happy in his own head. There's no real consequence. He's not thinking about what he did wrong. So what we would do is um, we would, I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the book one, two, three. Magic. Yes. I don't remember. It was so long ago because he's 15 now. I don't remember what the actual plan is, but I know what we did. We would say, I'm going to count to three. And in that time, you need to think about what you did. And then you need to tell me what you should have done. Now, we're talking toddlers, right? So mm -hmm. probably up to age five, give or take. So we'd hold his hand, we'd get down at his level, and I'd say one, two, three. And then he'd say what he should have done. And then he'd apologize for his actions. And then he would move on. And that was the end of it. Because any consequences past that point for a kid that age with ADD on top of it, they've forgotten about it by the time they're sitting in the chair. Yeah, I'm with you. And I have to be consistent and remember to let him out of timeout. <laughs> on the flip side of that, I have used the motivation side mm -hmm. to avoid negative behaviors. Yes. So yes. Like, yeah. like my guys were having some trouble. Um, they go to after school. Yep. 
they sometimes have some trouble paying attention to the aftercare coordinator and the teachers and stuff when there's like an all group announcement thing. We went through a phase where we were getting some reports that the boys are not paying attention like they need to pay attention. Not the end of the world. Yeah. They now know that if I get a bad report, you don't get to watch that one episode of Power Rangers or whatever when you get home, which doesn't perfectly fit the model, but it's not intended as a punishment or a consequence. It's intended as a motivator. Right. Exactly. So it's a little bit of a a different. It's their their currency. Their currency is they trade right now in Power Rangers episodes. And so they don't get paid if they don't do their job. Right. Um, Just going back to that, what makes things harder? Like, how does that, how does ADHD make things harder? Because we sort of didn't really get there. I know. I know. So I, I guess part of it is that I have a hard time answering that question because I've always had ADD. Okay. That's why I'm having a hard time being. You don't know what's different. I don't you are know. You're not the first person to answer it in that way. I know what I'm up against. So I kind of go in with a plan, which is ironic, all the time. Let me withdraw and rephrase. Okay, cool. Given that you have three people in your house who have it, how does ADHD play out in the relationship dynamics among the four of you? Like your one kid without ADHD, does he ever feel left out? <laughs> he is asked why he doesn't get to have it too. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, honey, you got all, he really does. He has um, a very creative mind without having the, what we might categorize as the things that hold us back. He doesn't really understand how lucky he is from that perspective. But um, what I have noticed is my anxious kid was not a tolerant child. He was born, we jokingly call him the little old man. He's not patient with kids his own age. He thinks that everybody should be respectful and kind to each other all the time, which is awesome. But having those expectations at an age when other kids aren't really capable of meeting your expectations leads to a lot of disappointment for him. But his empathy level has increased over time to a point where now he's the go-to kid in the classroom for the teacher when she has a kid with ADD who's struggling. She pairs him off with him and then... um, he walks them through things. He's patient with the fact that they get distracted and brings them back again. He never makes it an issue of like, come on, what's wrong with you? You know, he's like an advocate. Yeah. So from being in a family full of ADHD, he's like you said, he's become an advocate. Yes. And it's not a critical thing for him. He recognizes that we have strengths. Does he get frustrated by that role ever? I don't see it so much. I think he thinks he's really lucky to live in a house of people who aren't consistent enough to require him to be keeping his room clean all the time. I think he like leverages our weaknesses <laughs> um, and embraces our strengths. I've gotten some feedback from teachers over the years that he's a little bit of a mayor in the classroom. Like he's always running for office and talking to everybody and everything. And I was like, um, well, he's in a house of people who are constantly talking over each other and interrupting. So it does not surprise me at all that he is talking when he shouldn't be talking or helping his neighbors a lot because that's our atmosphere here. Like it's, we're always talking over each other. We're always yelling to each other. We're always in each other's business. And you're always helping each other too. We are, we are always helping each other. I think for him, he's adapted pretty well. And I think we might've rubbed off on him a little bit, you know, but I think it makes him a more understanding person. That's awesome. I'm sending him out into the world to advocate from the neurotypical side for us. Okay. One of the things that keeps shining through as you talk about your family that is wonderful to hear is the way that in the face of the challenges of ADHD, in the face of the challenges. That's my meds alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Do you need, do you need to go take them? No, I took them before just so that I knew I'd be juiced up. 
Okay. <laughs> Do you want me to leave that in? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where was I? Uh, right. So one, one of the things that keeps shining through for me here that I think is wonderful, the way that in, in the face of the challenges of ADHD, being a parent of a kid with ADHD, married to someone with ADHD, having ADHD yourself, with all of those challenges going on, including to some degree having one kid who doesn't fit that mold. I know. Yeah. That's probably like got some challenges. a little wrench in there, you know? Yeah. And well, I want to dig into that a little bit more. But in the face of all of those challenges, your family has chosen to turn toward each other instead of away from each other. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's huge. That's how you succeed. My husband wasn't diagnosed until he was an adult either. He also was an athlete. And so I think he was basically like self-medicating through his sports. And uh, he is diagnosed with ADHD, but his tendencies lean towards more just executive function problems. Like he's time blind, but he doesn't have the forgetfulness. He's a 4.0 student. His um, hyper-focus is academics and, and winning. Okay. So <laughs> if you that's put somebody with those motivators, right, you put somebody with those motivators in there, but like motivating him to do something else. But that speaks to things like emotional regulation. And, yes. Yep. And like impulse control and those kinds of things. That's, that's still in there. He's like the, the antithesis to mine. I'm like the impulsive, you know, we're going to, let's, let's go make this, let's build a fort. Like all those. Yeah. You married well. I'm the mess. Like I'm the mess maker. Yeah. He's not a mess cleaner. But, but he identifies them. I'm blind to it until he sees it. One of the things that it sounds like that I'm hearing and as you talk about your relationship with your husband specifically, people with ADHD tend to have trouble starting things and they tend to have trouble finishing things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes both, sometimes one or the other. I see my kitchen? No. Well, it kind of <laughs> sounds to me like your husband is better at starting things and you are better, at, better finishing. at finishing things. I absolutely am. Yep. Yeah, no, he absolutely is. And um, I'm way better at emotional regulation than he is. He's passion and I'm logic. Okay. To the point where in an argument, he'll escalate things sometimes because I'm not getting emotional enough and he doesn't understand why I am not as angry. Speaking his language. At, right, exactly. And I don't bite. I don't bite. It's not even an antagonizing. We don't play games. That's a rule. I know in a lot of marriages, people like, they'll go back to old arguments. We have enough on our plate. There's no extra stuff allowed. None of it. It really is, would try to build self-awareness all the time. We know it's key for our kids. We know it's especially important for the one with ADHD, but it's also, we found very important for the kid with anxiety. Actually, I'm just going to go out and say that everybody really needs a little bit more self-awareness. It's just particularly an issue in our tribe. And that self-awareness helps us move forward in respect of the people and understand that people are going to come to the table with their own differences and that everybody's doing their best. In a lot of ways, we're part of a minority group. And in being part of a minority group, we, are, we potentially can develop more compassion and empathy for others who have, are struggling because they're part of a minority group, because they have a handicap. Right. And we, we have the capacity to be more patient, but we also have to realize that we have to be forgiving of ourselves too. You're going to keep holding yourself to that standard that someone impossibly gave you at one point. You'll never find your happiness. You'll never find peace. We've just abandoned all of that. Here, it's safe. You're going to screw up? That's fine. We're all going to be working towards life skills and living on our own and all the things that are important. But I don't have the same... Like if my son doesn't do them at age seven, he does them at age nine. Developmentally, that's actually appropriate for ADHD. So there was no panic between ages seven and nine. We just worked towards it. 
I know he's going to get it. Yeah. And right there, you're talking about the fact that ADHD is a developmental disorder and the ADHD brain lags behind the neurotypical brain. But acknowledging that is huge. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes when you go to schools and you talk to teachers and, and you're in your 504, your IEP meeting, and you're trying, they're kind of stuck on the things that they've been told already about what ADHD is like and how it's supposed to work and all of that. And I, don't, I get very frustrated because I know I'm giving them firsthand information. I know very often it's kind of in one ear and out the other, which is kind of ironic for ADHD anyway. But <laughs> like if they would just realize that the output isn't there, that the skills they're trying to teach them will come in time. It's not a waste of their time just because they can't show it in that moment. And ADHD isn't as well understood in school as we would like no, it to be. No, it really isn't. They, it really isn't. It's, I mean, I do workshops at schools. I work with teachers. I consult with schools. There's a lot of bias that comes from the old perspective of ADHD, that it's a behavioral issue. Yep. And that's all that it is. And the kid just doesn't want to do it. It's a motivation problem. Yep. I, I mean, I think I'm at the forefront in a lot of ways of stemming that tide and saying, no, it's, it's a skills issue. It's a developmental issue. It's Absolutely. A, it's an executive functioning challenge. Yes. It's yes. not a lack of desire or a lack of motivation. No. And, and as much as accommodations are helpful and necessary and, and should be there, there are some key things that teachers could leverage that might make their day smoother sometimes. I found that the teachers who would come to me after class and say, I know that you're trying hard, but I know that we can do better. And I, I'm really confident that if I give you this assignment to take home and do again, you're going to do a better job. This is when you were a kid. Yeah. If they were vested in me, I didn't want to disappoint them. That emotional connection allowed me to not feel defeated. It allowed me to have an anchor in school yep. and not give up on myself because they weren't giving up on me. I want to add a layer to that, that I think you implied, but you didn't say. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that in those conversations, the teacher said, I know you can do better. I know that you can. I know that you can do this assignment again and improve it, which is all of what you said. But I'm assuming they also followed that up with, and here's how. Yes. And then layered in some skills, some new concepts, all of which built on the previous lesson and the mistakes that you made right. to help you figure out how to do better. Right, right. I don't care how many times someone tells me that they know I can do better. If they don't tell me how to do better, I'm probably not going to do better because I don't know anything any different. I just know that they care about me. And now I'm really concerned and freaking out because I'm like, I'm going to disappoint you because I don't know how to do a better job. <laughs> Help me out and build in the skills. You connect back to it. Right. It gives you context. It gives you an anchor for that point. Like, why was that important? Yes. Yeah. There's an emotional connection. It gives it context, especially in situations where there isn't a lot of context to go around. So like, if I really wanted my son to remember something, I'd get down at his level and I'd talk quietly and I would thank him for all the effort that he was putting into doing it. And I would say, but here's what I want you to do next time. If you think you can do that, tell me back what I want you to do next time this happens. And then he'd repeat it back to me and I'd say, okay, are you ready to go? And then he'd go. And then that was it. Like that was the whole thing. But there was an emotional connection. That again is those two prongs, right? The emotional connection and also the skills. Yes. Because like, here's what I want you to do repeat back to me how you're going to do it. That's the skill side. Getting down to his level, saying I'm, I appreciate how motivated you are and how hard you're trying is the emotional level. Exactly. And it's so different than a teacher saying, okay, everybody hand in your homework. And then coming to the meeting and saying, I tell them every day to, to hand in their homework. I don't know why he's not doing it. There's no connection for him in that moment. So if you go over and you put your hand on his desk and you look at him in the eye and you say, what is everybody doing right now? 
and he looks around the room and he assesses that situation, you're teaching the skill that he needs. He, he's learning that skill like, I, I am not doing what everybody's doing. Maybe I should look around and see what's happening and emulate what's happening. But they need that drawn to their attention so they can kind of build that safety net. So your kids are a little older. Mm -hmm. How have the challenges changed? Well, medication's a huge challenge for him in particular. I found my med. It works great for me. My son with ADD has significant allergies too. So he's allergic to a ton of things. Um, and he also has food allergies. And when your histamine levels are off, that affects your brain. Mm -hmm. And it affects, in his case, it affects how effective his medication is. How did you figure that one out? How did you figure the antihistamine out? Because when pollen season would hit, meds didn't work at all. Okay. He would, it was like he was taking nothing. That's not something I've ever heard before. That's why I said in his case, because I, I never want to make it sound like, well, this is the I, And I appreciate that. This is not a podcast where we're going to extrapolate anything beyond. No, no. The pediatrician's answer to that was, um, well, you know, even if, I, if, if a diabetic patient came in, they might say that their, their insulin isn't working as well mm -hmm. when they have allergy problems. We can't, you know, we don't know what contributes to that. And Yeah, we can't generalize. There aren't any studies that are going to prove this. Maybe there will be eventually. Maybe there are. I don't know. But let's look at the studies and the science before we start committing to this being a thing. He's a physically hyper kid. Um, that was what it affected the most. So he might have been able to concentrate if he could have sat still. Like his meds might have been working from an internal perspective, but it wasn't controlling his external movements and interactions with things. So he wasn't able to do any work. Um, so it really mattered what classroom he was placed in. Yeah. And the teacher that he had and their understanding of things. They didn't have to understand ADHD a lot. They just had to be understanding. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And want him to do well. If they want him to do well, they'll work with me and I'll work with them. And I have always told every teacher every year, you reach out to me. I've got your back. That's my purpose. But I can't be as helpful or effective at home if you do not tell me where you see the strengths and weaknesses so that I can help reinforce those skills. And I would say communication from teachers has been spotty over the years. I wish it was better, but I really think it comes down to what my expectations are come from the perspective of somebody who grew up with ADHD. I know exactly what I need from them, but I am not necessarily great at articulating exactly what I need from them. Okay. They're expecting me to reach out. Oh, I'm noticing that he's not handing in his homework. No, I'm not noticing that. You're noticing that. Give me a heads up that he's not handing in his homework and I'll try to get to the bottom of it here. Is it an organizational thing? Did he leave his book at school? Sometimes he'd like a teacher so much, if he forgot to do his homework, he just would not tell me because he didn't want me to know that he let the teacher down. Wow. I know. You know, like, it's challenging because the hurdles change every time you get the hang of it. Okay. What's next? So now we've hit puberty. How's that going? <laughs> oh, it's awesome. It's so fantastic. I remember finding out I was having a boy and thinking, oh my gosh, puberty. Like he was not even born yet. And I was like nervous about that. And I didn't even know he had ADD because I'm one of five girls. I have no experience with this, you know? Like, Yeah, yeah. My wife is in a similar boat where she's, she only has a sister. There's only mm -hmm. girls. I mean, her dad, but, but it's a girl heavy house. And then uh, we had two sons. And even when they were like two and three, she was like, oh my God, they're like two smelly little boys. They and are. They're not, they haven't even hit puberty yet, and they're already smelly boys. Yes, and they, and they leave things places, and they pee in random locations. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just stuff you don't – it's not on your radar. Yeah, <laughs> and I hope they're done peeing in random locations. Yes, they, they are. That's over. Changed. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. 
one plant died and that was the end of it. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm just going to let the listeners assume it was the ADHD kid who peed. <laughs> I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. <laughs> I have to be a good mom. That's awesome. As we talk, it is clear to me that you have done a ton of homework to learn about ADHD. Yes. Um, and worked very hard to figure out what it is and how it works and, and take the necessary steps to serve your family as best you can. And I want I just want to note that. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's an important thing for our listeners to hear, for you to hear that your effort is clear and that your family is better off for, for the steps you've taken. So uh, oh. thank you. As a member of the greater ADHD <laughs> community, and I suppose as a de facto, I don't know, like figurehead maybe. <laughs> I don't know what the right word is, but as a de facto guy who has a podcast about ADHD, um, thank you for doing that. I think it's, it's owning it and living with it and um, realizing that the strengths can in some ways really far. I really just need somebody to live the normal every adulting, everyday adulting stuff for me. I can do so many things mm -hmm. and I can be so successful that somebody could just handle the accounting end. <laughs> you know? um, and I think that a lot of kids grow up without anyone understanding them. And that's a really confusing way to grow up. And so I refuse. I refuse. And I remember when he was diagnosed and when I was diagnosed, the reason I started taking meds was that I refused to allow my ADD to affect their lives in a negative way. I was advocating for them through myself. And I decided I'm, I'm open about this now. No one that knows me does not know that I have ADHD. It's probably obnoxiously present in my conversation. <laughs> I will constantly advocate for these kids and the fact that they need people who understand them or at least try to understand them and be them be there for them so that they always have somewhere safe to be because it's very confusing and it's it's overwhelming and because most of the world has expectations we can't meet through our young life. Right. And then you feel like you're a failure and you're not. That openness is a real challenge. I mean, a lot of the parents who show up on this podcast, I'm only using their first names because unless I have very clear permission that you are comfortable having a podcast that goes out literally around the world. I've been listened to on every single continent except Antarctica. Yeah, who's there right now? Yeah. Um, but other than that, it's not even on the map that tells me where I've been listened to. I don't want to take that risk. I don't want to make you take that risk when people are yeah. on this podcast. So if people are like, yes, use my full name, I'm like, okay, cool. But other than that, I'm like, nope. Teachers, you're getting your full name. Experts, you're getting your full name. Parents, if you are revealing that you have ADHD, I am not making you use your full name. I'm an autodidactic expert at this point. I've spent a lot of time trying to help him out as best I can, figure out where the weaknesses are, you know, and advocating for kids in general because, you know, when they come here for sewing and they'll apologize for something their child has done. A mom might come in with a child and go, you know, he's a little, uh, he's a little distracted today and I was like don't worry he'll fit right in here everybody here's got ADD and then and then I'll get the he does too you know like they don't <laughs> want to tell you up front because they're afraid of the label and they're afraid of um, whether or not I'll want to work with them and I was like no this is where he's supposed to be here they can talk about whatever they want they can be whoever they need to be they all do their projects on an individual basis so like usually you can't compare right it's all self-driven yeah. and there's that there's that shame that yeah exists right like that that's a big motivator for this podcast man mm -hmm. isn't it 
a big reason it's for this podcast. Why I was so excited to be on it. Yeah, like let's. I want people to listen to this podcast and be like, "Oh, it's not just me. Like, I'm not the only one going through this. I don't need no. to feel bad about it." That's that's half the mission. The other half is mm-hmm. to get to the people who work with people with ADHD and say, "This is what it is and how it works, and this is how you can work with those kids more effectively." And I think there's a lot of parents out there who really, I mean, every who doesn't want to do right by their kid. Right. But their kids with ADHD are speaking a different language if they're neurotypical. Yeah. And by the same token, what kid doesn't want to do right by their parents? Right, exactly. And that constant feeling of letting them down is overwhelming. Yeah. And then we decide that they're not motivated. Yep. And the truth is that they just haven't figured it out yet. So part of that respect thing going way back Yep. is as an adult, I acknowledge when I've made a mistake to my kids. And I apologize for that mistake. Awesome. Because... First of all, I've got ADD. So statistically, I'm making mistakes. Mm-hmm. If I'm not owning them, I'm not being true to myself or to them. And it's, it's counterproductive. Right. It also gives them some impression of who I am. And it's not really who I am. If, if I never own my mistakes, you know, I'd rather they own it and move on or own it and correct it and move on. And you're teaching them how to do that by modeling it for them. Yeah. And you're treating them like a person first and a kid second. Always, always. That's so important. It's um, a freeing way to live. And it's hard to let go of those reins that you were always shown and always taught that this is how kids are raised and this is what you do. Or, you know, I know there's no book, but we all know there's punishments and consequences and structure. And well, if you suck at all of those things, you need a new plan. And I did. I needed a new plan. And so we just threw it all out the window and we were like, you know what? If we just treat each other the way we want to be treated, that's half the battle right there. Do you know how many problems that solves? If you respect somebody and that person asks a favor of you, you do it. There's no like, well, next time you're going to do this for me. It's literally, I care enough about you to try to help you out Yep. and vice versa. If your relationship is based on respect with your kids or anybody else, then you've eliminated half of the problems of the, the world almost at that point. You can have a reasonable conversation and walk away from it without being upset with each other. I'm really happy with the way it's gone. And it was totally one of those, um, you might have to have ADHD to dive in that way, you know, and not worry about the consequences. Mm-hmm. Some hell or high water, we're going in this direction, you know, and we'll just see how it goes. And I'm really happy with it. I really am. It's not a passive form of parenting. It's just a different way of doing it. I hear you. So just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials about ADHD that you would like to share with the listeners? Having a diagnosis of ADHD does not mean that we all have the same ADHD. And so what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another person. And I look at it like, let's throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. You kind of got to be flexible that way. Look at your child and their reaction to how you do something and decide if that's the reaction you want them to take away from that. Stepping back and observing your kid helps more than almost anything else. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.